Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are continuing a series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 19. We're going to finish up Matthew 19 today, and then we're going to get into Matthew 20 next week. Uh, while you're turning there, if you got a Bible, you can turn there. That's great. You got it on your phone, on a tablet. That's all awesome, good stuff as well. If you're joining us online, if you got something with you, you can follow along. But if you don't, here's the thought I had this week. Don't worry about it. Because um, most of Scripture was actually written to be listened to. Uh, in, in highly um, illiterate societies, it was largely intended for someone to stand up and read anyway. So maybe it's a more authentic experience for us to listen to the Scriptures being read than to even read them ourselves. But if you want to follow along, you definitely can to make sure I'm not making things up. Um, while you're getting there, quick last reminder is today is the last day to sign up for Rooted and Grow. And if you don't know what either of those two words mean, it means that you should get yourself signed up for Rooted. Um, we say that Rooted is the, the answer, that Rooted is uh, the entry point for us. If you want to find a way to get connected, to find community, find a place to serve, uh, understand who Jesus is and God and all this kind of like church stuff, Rooted is where you want to get yourself plugged into. It is 10 weeks. It feels like a big commitment. It's designed to fit with the term schedule, um, but I promise you will be glad that you did. And so you can get yourself signed up for Rooted by texting Monmouth to 97,000. Text the word Monmouth to number 97,097000. And uh, you'll get a menu back. You can also get signed up that way for Grow. And Grow is, um, is classes that we offer where we kind of focus on like one space in your life. Right, and so the class that we have space available right now is emotionally healthy spirituality, and uh, and you get yourself signed up for that. It begins this week, as well. Okay, Matthew 19. Before we read, just a quick little recap because it's essential to the story we're going to look at is to remember that this story, even though we kind of take chunk by chunk and your Bible like mine might have a heading that tries to make it look like the previous story is different, um, this story is a continuation of a moment. There's not a pause, there's not a go away and reflect and think, and then the disciples go, oh, we should ask this question. There's a conversation going on that we talked about last week called the young rich ruler, right? And this guy, wealthy and powerful and important and good, like moral, like a nice guy. He comes to Jesus because of all of his stuff and all of his goodness he finds in himself, he still recognizes that there's something missing, that just being a good person has left him still feeling like there is more to this life than just being a good person. And so he comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do? Right? And he comes humbly. Remember, Luke tells us that he came and he fell at Jesus' feet. And he asks him this question, and Jesus tells him, um, you know, do all the stuff you're supposed to do. And he says, I did all that, but there's still something more. And he says, uh, well, what I want you to do is I want you to sell everything and come follow me. And that's an important detail to remember. And we talked about last week that it's not because Jesus is against stuff. Right? There are plenty of stories of wealthy people in Scripture, and God doesn't call all of them to sell their stuff. What, what, what Jesus is calling them to is, is to uh, humility, is, is to an identity change, is that he finds his identity in his stuff. 
He is, in fact, the young, rich ruler. We talked about that there's a weird thing to the story that we don't know his name. And that's odd because there's a lot of people that we know their names that we shouldn't know their name, but we don't know his name because his identity was that he's a young, rich ruler. And Jesus invites him to a new identity to being a Jesus follower alone. So that's all of our context that just happened. And now Peter speaks. If a disciple's going to speak, it would be Peter that you would expect to speak. And so here it is. You ready? Here's Peter. It says this. Hey, uh, Chris, I think Ableton's still playing. Okay, here we go. Don't worry, for the people watching online, we'll edit that out later. Okay, here we go. Then uh, verse 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Okay, so, so see the importance of the connection to that context. Jesus just told a guy that what he needs to do is to leave everything and to follow him. And Peter's saying, we already did that. We sold everything that we have. We gave away everything that we had to follow you. And he says this, what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's just, he's setting context for when this reward is gonna come. It's gonna come in the end times. It's gonna come when everything comes to completion. Um, and just to throw a little wrench in your end times ideology, um, look at the word that Jesus uses to talk about end times. He, he doesn't use the word in the destruction of all things. Look, in the regeneration, you see, from the very beginning, God's been about a mission of regeneration, of restoration, of reconciliation. So what he says to his disciples is he says, in that moment, when everything is made right and everything is put back together, verse 29, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, they'll receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, now that phrase, as many times as much, is a great translation, okay? It's a great translation. And it's, it's one of the places that, um, man, it's just such a good translation. But I want you to know, in the literal Greek, that's not what it says. In the literal Greek, and you may have a version that translates it, um, and it says this, that, that anyone will receive a hundred times more. Because the Greek, that's what it literally says, is 100 times more. But the reason my Bible and some of your translations say, and many times as much, is because it's an idiom. It's just a phrase. Um, uh, it's to say more than you can count, innumerably more, right? It's not a literal number, so they translate as many as much as more. But as many, you see I'm good with my words there. Um, they, they, is, they translate, but it literally means 100 times more. So a lot of times throughout today, we're going to talk about 100-fold and, and that's why, because that's what the literal Greek says right there. Here's the deal. Um, little, little confession. Um, Jesus says weird stuff. Did you know that? In fact, I would contend with you that if you don't know Jesus says weird stuff, uh, maybe a couple scenarios going on. Maybe you just have never actually read the words of Jesus. Like, this is a great, Jesus says weird stuff. Or maybe it's because you don't actually sit and kind of breathe and think about what he's saying. Because look at what he just said. Read with me again, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses. Now, if you leave a house, what'll happen? He says down at the end that you'll get a hundred times more. Okay? That could work. 
right? If, you, if for some reason, you know, in our day, it may be more common if you were like a missionary or whatever, but you can find out in the early church that um, they, uh, when, when Christianity was an illegal religion, they very well were risking their livelihood and sometimes their homes to follow Jesus. So he's saying, you know, if, if, if following me leads to you losing your home, I'll give you 100 more homes. And we could go, okay, I mean, you know, regeneration of everything. I, I wouldn't want like 100 homes in like one subdivision. That'd just be weird. I don't know what I'd do with all of them, right? But you know, like if Jesus wanted to give me a home in Italy, I wouldn't argue. I'd really like it to be kind of on a rocky shore, you know, but I'm not gonna be picky. If he gives me a home in Italy, like I'm gonna take it, you know? Maybe um, in France, not, not, in, not in Paris. I mean, Paris would be cool too. But like the, the countryside of France, I mean, it, it is gorgeous. Um, you know, I could find 97 other places that Jesus could give me a home, right? I'd be good with that. But, but, but continue reading. Okay, it says this. If you lose a, leave a house 100 times fold, right? Then he says this. It gets a little weirder. Brothers or sisters, for some of you to leave your brother or sister is not a sacrifice. But, but let's say you do. Let's say something happens in your relationship, something happens in your life to where um, it, it fissures your relationship with your brother or sister, or uh, God calls you to a place where you lose. It's hard for us to imagine in this world um, in the last 50 years, but you lose the ability to have contact with them. Uh, our church here was established 165 years ago by people who left Monmouth, Illinois and walked, sold everything that they had, walked 2,000 miles to a land they'd never seen, which just tells you what it's like to live in Illinois, that it's worth walking 2,000 miles just to get away from it. Right, And they walk 2,000 miles to do what they believe God called them to do. Do not ever miss this. Don't misunderstand this. This church and this community and that university there was planted by faithful followers of Jesus as a mission to be a lighthouse into this state of an unknown new territory to proclaim the gospel. And they sold everything to come here and do that. And they were successful. And still today, there's the town of Monmouth. There's Monmouth Christian Church. And there's what is now Western Oregon University. It used to be the college at Monmouth or Monmouth College. They, they, early on, they weren't really real professional, so they weren't too concerned with names. There wasn't a lot of branding going on, right? But they left everything. And when they left, they would hug family members knowing that they were probably never going to see their face again knowing that this side of heaven, they would probably never see. And so, so you could see those people reading this, saying, Jesus, I gave up all of my brothers and sisters, my cousins, my, my, my nephews and nieces to follow you. And Jesus could say, well, I'll, I'll give you 100 more. And, you know, maybe. I mean, he could, you know. It, but, but look at the next one. Or Father or mother. That's just not scientifically possible. Right? Like, we could over-spiritualize this, and I don't think this is what Jesus is saying. You could over-spiritualize and say, well, I have spiritual mothers in my life who have invested in me, and that's good, and that's great. But tell me, if you've lost your mother, having a spiritual mother replaces her? 
that if you've lost your father having a spirit, having a hundred spiritual fathers, you know what it does? It just diminishes the pain and the agony you experience in your loss. I mean, look at the next one, right? Look at the next one that Jesus says. Or children. Maybe um, if you have ever lost a child, or if you know anyone that has, maybe the most hurtful thing you could say to anyone ever is, well, you know, maybe, maybe God will give you another kid. Like, how is this an assurance to people? It doesn't make sense. It's weird. Like, just be honest. Don't be nervous. Okay, we're in church. I'm a pastor. I've been doing this a long time. I really believe this book. Okay? But it's weird. It makes sense. Here's, here's what I think is going on here. One of the things unique to the Christian faith um, is uh, the best way I've been able to describe it is this, and it's one of the most beautiful, I think, gifts of the Christian faith, is that, is that God speaks our language. I haven't figured out a better way to say it because he does literally speak our language, which don't miss if all you've grown up in is, is Western, and, uh, Western America and Christianity being the largest faith influence in our nation. If that's all you've ever experienced, don't miss that for many other religions around the world that God speaks a certain language. And that if you don't speak to God in that language, that God won't hear you. One of the great gifts of our faith is that you can speak in whatever language, and God's big enough to know you and to hear you in all the millions of human languages that have existed. God speaks our language. He speaks our heart language. We talk in missions work. He, talks, he speaks your heart language, right? But it's bigger than that. Um, God speaks our language in, in this. Um, Scripture says elsewhere, uh, God says of himself, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Here's what I adamantly believe, that if God was to describe reality to us, if our language could contain it, our brains would not. Just think about eternity. You ever had anybody try and explain eternity to you? Think about, think about the moment of creation. Before there was anything, it says that God spoke all things into existence. Okay, we've done this experiment as church before. Try and think of nothing. Okay, now what I can almost guarantee you're thinking of is a black space in space, which is something. It's a black space in space. Think of nothing. You can't. But before God spoke everything into existence, there was him. That was it. But God speaks to us. Here's, here's, here's what, here's, um, Joshua. You know Joshua, Old Testament? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. I'm gonna, don't worry, I'm going to come out with my own worship album. Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? You know that song? I can tell by your facial expressions which one of you grew up in Sunday school. Um, everybody else is like, this dude's really weird. So um, not in that story, but in another fit that Joshua fit, which is my new favorite word. Um, Joshua was fitting another battle. And uh, he thought he was going to win, but the sun was going to set, and they were going to be able to recapture it. They were going to be able to kind of recollect themselves, and the war was going to carry on. And so Joshua, you remember what Joshua does? Joshua prays that the sun would stand still, that the sun would stop moving, okay? In, in the Hebrew, it literally says that Joshua prayed that the sun would stop its, its spinning, 
okay? Here's my question for you. How did God respond to him? Did God respond to Joshua and go, well, Joshua, what you don't realize is that um, actually the earth is the one that's spinning. That the earth spinning only gives you a perception that the sun is rotating because the sun is actually a stationary object in relation to its own solar system, but the sun itself is in a solar system that's in a greater galaxy that's spinning itself, and it's in the midst of this constant spinning. So do you really want me to make the sun stop spinning? Because it wouldn't stop the movement of the sun in the sky. It'd still descend over this way. You know what God does? He stops the earth from spinning. He speaks Joshua's language. He speaks in a way that Joshua understands the world to exist. There's another, um, the Old Testament, right? It says this, that God saves with his mighty right hand. How many of you think that God is an embodied being? Now, yes, for 33 years, Jesus was an embodied being. He came and he dwelt fully as man, fully as God, and he had a right hand. But it does not mean that every time we read that passage in the Old Testament, that Jesus suddenly showed up and like with one hand, just like muscled everybody down to the ground. God's speaking our language. He's trying to explain to them something that we don't really understand what's going on. We don't really understand what it means to be a fully spiritual being. We don't really understand what it means to be God and the ways that he works in the mysterious and powerful ways that his thoughts are not our thoughts. But here's another great example you might have missed before. Um, Paul is talking about marriage in the New Testament, right, like after Jesus, in the end of the, towards the end of the book. He's talking about marriage. And uh, a lot of times we'll read the passage and we'll talk about like what it means for marriage and how you have a good marriage, a healthy marriage, and you know, love and respect, which is great Bible study, love and respect, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, um, but we miss the last verse of what, what Paul says. This is what he says at the very end. He says this. He says, this is a great mystery, but what I am speaking of is Christ and the church. See, the purpose of the passage for Paul is not to describe to you how to have a great marriage. He's trying to describe to the people what it looks like to be the people of God in relation to God. He, what he's trying to say is, um, us as a church collectively, the body, it's, it's kind of like a marriage. Now, nobody actually thinks that like, when you get to heaven, you're gonna show up in a white wedding gown. Right? Or that God's going to somehow take the whole universal church and like mash us together into one bride and then put this enormously huge wedding gown and then we're going to walk down the aisle and Jesus is going to be standing in the front with his knees shaking, waiting for us. Right? Nobody believes, but God's trying to explain eternal, true realities to finite minds, to bodies that don't understand what it means to be eternal. To, to people whose language and brain could not even grasp the grandeur of God. I, I've told people plenty of times before, if you could explain God, it would make you smarter than God. And then we're all in trouble. God's brain, God, the way, God didn't even have a brain, the way God thinks is not like ours. If you were here this last summer, one of my favorite lines from our uh, best sermon ever series was um, uh, when one of the guys said, uh, you know, God's never had a new thought. Just, just never. Like he just, he knows, he exists and knows all that is and will be because it's all right there in front of him in some crazy, unexplainable way. He just never went, you know, I thought the other day. He just never has. I see what Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples is something that is more beautiful and greater than words can articulate. 
How, how do you explain to a bunch of finite, broken, sinful people what the regeneration of all things looks like? How do you, how do you explain to people who've been born into a world fractured by death and sin what a world apart from sin and death looks like? How do you explain to them who, who, have, who have been rebellious, like us, rebellious in our own heart? Uh, um, Paul tells us that we look now uh, um, through, through a dimly lit mirror, that we look now through like a fog, but one day we'll see clearly. How do you explain to people that just don't even have language, don't even have cons? Well, this is what Jesus does. He just, he says, you know what? For everything that you've given, it's gonna be like more. It's gonna be more. So the problem, the wrestling that we have with a passage like this is that what Jesus is trying to describe to us, he knows our brains just don't have the capacity to navigate. But there are promises that Scripture gives us of what it means to follow Jesus and what we receive when we follow Jesus. I made a, a quick little list here, and if you're a note taker, you're going to have to read. You're going to have to write quick because we're going to try and go through these really quick because our brain can't fully grasp everything. But Jesus and Scriptures tell us something. Um, John six thirty seven. Jesus tells us that in following Jesus, that one of the beautiful, undescribable gifts that we receive is acceptance. And, and, and we live in a, in, in a culture that uh, I think in a lot of great ways has tried to uh, affirm to people, like you have a space and, and you're valuable and you're loved and you're important and you're welcome here. Not just in this church, but like in our, in our greater culture. The, the problem with that is that if it only ends there, all of us are living some sort of lie. All of us are living some sort of face that we project and what we do in our mind is we, is we think, yes, you would love me if I was the person I tell you that I am. That you would accept me as long as you don't know about the dark corners of my life. As long as you don't know about that day, about that habit, about that season, about that angry moment, about that evening. But Jesus, God says, I know everything about you. I know, I know all the ways. Think about this. God already knows all the ways that you're gonna try and train wreck your life in the future. Do you know that? And that's me being an optimist, knowing that every single one of you are gonna make decisions that are gonna be stupid. And God already knows those. He says, you have a place with me. John 15 tells us that we get to be a friend of God. And again, if you've grown up in the church world around the church, don't lose the weight of that. God is not some celestial being out in the distance that um, expects you to pass a test at the end of your life. He is someone who wants to draw near to you. The whole message of Jesus and the gospel is that God comes near, that he's present, that he's here, that he wants to be with you. John 15, verses nine through 11, tells us that we can get joy and what it's talking about there is a kind of joy that, that supersedes the waves and the winds and the chaos of your life. A kind of joy that penetrates through the most painful and broken seasons of your life. And actually, I'd probably contend a kind of joy that actually flourishes in the most painful seasons of your life. Matthew 28 and 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tell us that we can, um, that we can live with an eternal, with, with purpose, we can live with a purpose that we have an eternal impact. Here's, here's the depressing reality for all of us is in 100 years for most of us, almost every single one of us, nobody's gonna remember your name. You're not important enough. For almost every single one of us in 100 years, the only recollection of our name is gonna be a tombstone. 
But you have the opportunity in being a follower of Jesus to live a life that ripples into eternity, whose purpose and power does not end in your death. Acts 5.31 and a million other places tell us that we have an opportunity for forgiveness, that there is nothing, there is nothing that God will not forgive you for. There is nothing. I mean, think about it. Think about the thing that you're wrestling with, whether you can receive forgiveness, whether you can live in freedom and life knowing that God has forgiven you. Do you think that you are the first person in all of human history that your sin was too great for the gift of Jesus' blood? We can get forgiveness. Oh, I love this one. Revelation 2, verse 17. This is another one of those places where God's trying to tell us something that our brains would just go and we don't really understand. And so all it says in, in Revelation 2.17, you should look it up, it says that he's gonna give us a new name. And I don't know what that's gonna look like and I don't know what that's gonna mean, but I think what he's trying to tell us is that every one of us carry an identity around this world. You're the, when you show up to a group, you're the person who plays this role. When you show up at work, you're the person who plays this role, that you're expected to kind of act a certain way. And maybe it's, maybe it's really good and awesome, but maybe it's also marked by some brokenness in your past. But, but part of the regeneration of all things is that Jesus is gonna give you a new name, a new identity. We sang about it earlier. First John 1, 12 through 13 tells us that we have a father whether you had a good father, an involved father, or a missing father, or absentee, or abusive, or angry, or violent, or apathetic father, whatever you had on this earth, you can have a good father who will never fail you, who will never forget you, who will never mess up his priorities. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we can have righteousness, and that sounds like a really boring church word, but to be honest, it's what so many of our souls crave because we know that there's something broken in us. There's a shame we carry, a guilt we carry, and, and Scripture tells us that because of Jesus, we can be declared right. We can be declared whole. We can be declared made clean. 1 John 4.19 says that we can be loved Again, perfectly and completely, just like we talked about with acceptance. John 14, 27 says that we can have peace, not a peace that's, that's determined by the circumstances of this world, but scripture tells us elsewhere, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 tells us that we can find comfort and healing from a sympathetic high priest, that we serve a God who knows our pain, who weeps with us. John 14, 21 tells us that we get Jesus, this Messiah that we pursue, that we come every single week to, to think on and to ponder and to study and be amazed by, that we can walk with him. Lastly, Matthew 16, 24 and 25 and Luke 10 tell us that we can have a kind of life, a kind of life that, um, a, a kind of life that, uh, that's more than just living. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. So many of us are so concerned with just getting through the day, getting through the week, getting the next vacation, getting the next holiday, getting the next promotion, getting the new job, getting the new relationship. But Jesus is saying that we can have a kind of life as a follower of Jesus that gives power and meaning even to the most mundane parts of our life. Man, the list goes on and on. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is that for those of us who are willing to give of who we are, to give up the things that we have to pursue Jesus, that it will be a hundred times, abundantly more. 
So here's the principle. Here's the principle I think Jesus is trying to teach us. Look at the rich young ruler and look at the disciples' response. Here's what I think he's trying to say. Givers get. Givers get. There will be no sacrifice that you give. There'll be no moment that you give that goes overlooked or unrewarded. And see, if we believed that, all of us would live with such open-handedness and obedience. If we believed that every moment that we made a sacrifice or a decision to follow Jesus, that God would, under, uh, 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 um, that God would honor that a hundredfold, we'd live totally differently. See, but the, the, the sticking point between being willing to give and actually giving is actually in direct correlation to how much you trust that the words Jesus says are true. Uh, Chris, come here. Will, will you help me? Chris is running sound for us today, and so I figured he just wanted to spend a lot of time with me because I assume that's why our tech team volunteers. Because um, if you've ever run tech team, you'll realize there's no reward for it. <laughs> um, Chris, I got an envelope for you. Congratulations. You. Have a great day. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Here we go. I know you don't have a microphone, so online people, I'm going to repeat everything you say, okay? So don't talk too much. Okay. Okay. Okay, here we go. Um, Chris, how much is that? Dollar. There you go. Good job. Okay? Okay? You want to put that in your envelope there? Um, this is all the change I could find in my truck. Um, um, it's not much. Yeah, yeah. I think that's 98 cents. You agree that's 98 cents? Close enough. Okay, perfect. There you go. Okay. There you go, Chris. You can close that up there. Okay. Now here, um, what I want you to do is I want you to put that between your hands, between your palms. You can turn sideways here because they need to kind of see. I know you guys aren't back there, aren't going to get to see it, but we're going to do our best, okay? Now, here's the deal. Um, I have $20 in here because I'm not as rich as Jesus. So you, tenfold, okay? Are we good with that? Do you believe I have $20 in here? <laughs> Trust, man, right there, okay? Okay? Our willingness to give is in direct correlation to our ability to trust, okay? So I got 20 bucks. See, I hid it in here because I didn't want you to cheat, okay? Because I wanted you to trust me. Now, since you didn't trust me, you have little faith. Get behind me, Satan. I'm kidding, okay? Now, here, I have, I have 20 bucks here, okay? Now we know I have 20 bucks here, right? And I'm gonna be faithful with my word. I got 20 bucks here. Now, uh, you can have this 20 bucks, but the only way you can have this 20 bucks is if you clasp it between the palms of your hand, Okay? Go for it. I'm not going to move it. you got to trust me, man. That was a bad class between the palm of your hands, but it's close enough. It. There you go. I got it. I got it. <laughs> okay. Is the illustration obvious enough? The rich young ruler comes clasping the things he has. The disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, we gave up everything. And Jesus says, for those who give up and grab hold, you'll receive. Those who give will get. You can go take a seat, man. I, I have a quote on my wall, and it says this. Still he seeks the fellowship of his people, that through pain and suffering he might remove their hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself that he might remove his hands from things of this world and attach them to himself. Here's what I know. 
Last couple weeks, we've been talking a lot about this, about the things that we hold on to. And last week, I asked you, like, what is that thing? That thing, more than money, more than a hobby, but what is that thing that gives you identity? What's that thing that gives you purpose? What's that thing that, 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 that gives you a significance and purpose and gives you an identity? Because Jesus is calling us to let go of those things and to grab hold of him. Here's the, here's the thing I believe. I believe that every single one of us knows what that thing is. I believe that today, in this moment, I bet that you know the things that God's been wrestling with you about. I bet you know the things that God's been telling you. You need to let go of this. I believe that you know the things that God's been saying. You gotta trust me in this. I know it doesn't make sense. A hundredfold doesn't make sense. I know the math doesn't make sense. I know the relational decision doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense to take this step of faith, but I need you to trust me. And I need you to let go and take hold because I will always be better than clasping on to things that wither and fade. So my question for you today is not what is it because I bet you know. I bet you know without thinking hard. But will you? Do you trust him? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Did you just see it? He says it right there. Anyone, that's you, that's me, who gives up much more, abundantly more. So the question today is simply this. Will you let go of it? Will you let go of it? Because there's life on the other side.